And so it was like the, the, that story of going from the highest high to the wow. lowest low. And then I still had a long way to ski out of there to get out. And luckily I wasn't, like I didn't really actually fall. I just kind of rolled over. But it was just an it awkward, go. yeah, I was screaming at the top. It was mm. a, one of the more painful things because I didn't fully uh, tear the ACL. I'd like... 80% toward or something. Mm-hmm. So then the nerves are still there and it was, yeah, it was not nice. And that was the end of my trip and the end of my season. But yeah, that line, <laughs> I look back and I'm like, oh, I wonder if I would do that again. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Hi friends. Happy start to the winter. I hope it's snowing where you are because it is full on winter where I am here in Jackson. And I just got back from Alta 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 from a she jumps retreat where we are getting more people of color into the outdoors. Super psyched on that. But that was Hoji, Eric Hjorlipsen, who this week is dropping his new film with Matchstick Productions. I caught up with Hoji at the Adventure Lodge outside Boulder, Colorado to talk everything from this new film to how he got his start. We'll talk about his progression through the ski industry and all the adventure that's come along with it. I'm big mountain skier and adventurer, Lindsay Dyer, and this is the Showing Up Podcast. I started these conversations in person with real humans making a life in the outdoors to inspire the unicorn in you to embrace your weird, do the thing even if you suck at it, and fully show up for this one wild and precious life. I always thought Hoji was quiet. (laughs) Turns out he has a lot to say. Enjoy. Hoji, <laughs> we're outside uh, Boulder, Colorado, at the Adventure Lodge. Hoji's on this like world tour promoting his new boot, and he's been all quiet about it. But the new Hoji movie, yeah, yeah, that's a project that's kind of come to life here in the last uh, few months. I mean, it's been been talked about for a while. Um, just kind of working with the matchstick guys and the idea has been thrown around and then, yeah, finally, um, we're able to get the ball rolling and get, get some sponsors on board and just seemed like a good time to, to do it. It's been, you know, 14 years of working with those guys and uh, a lot of new stuff happening with the ski boot and the revised renegade and just like, yeah, it's good, good opportunity to, go and watch all that old footage again and put the best of the best together and kind of build up a story around uh, my journey here. Very fortunate journey in the ski industry. Yeah, it has been. You're so inspiring. So take us back to where it all began. Where were you born? How did it all start? (laughs) Where did you get this style? (laughs) Uh, Yeah, that's style, huh? (laughs) No, I, I mean, I'm pretty fortunate. I grew up I was born in Banff Alberta Canada and grew up just outside the next town over Canmore and uh had some wonderful parents a great childhood and really it's my parents that provided me the opportunity to to go skiing took me myself and my brother skiing when we were just barely walking you know or two I think I was even before I was two years old they were like pushing me around on the 
bottom of the Mount Norquay out of Banff there. And Are you the oldest or youngest? Yeah, I'm the older brother. So I, a younger brother, Stephen, and um, yeah, we had a lot of fun. But <laughs> And what did they do, your parents? Uh, they, my parents, I think they really inspired kind of this drive and kind of making your own way and creating opportunities and taking advantage of, of following like passion and, and like motivation in your life. So they moved it to Canmore in the late seventies and it was a, a kind of failed mining town in a depression, a mini depression. Um, meanwhile, Banff was this international, like already at that time, a very popular international destination. And they were just kind of got in at the right time um, my father bought a half-finished house that was needed to be sold, and he basically trained himself to become a carpenter and did a few courses and finished the house. And the the town of Canmore throughout my childhood, like it just was entering into this boom where everything changed. It went from a mining industry town to a very kind of refurbished um, resort-style town. A lot of people coming in from Calgary and being, you know, it has the international airport and then Banff really got shut down, restricted. No one could really invest in Banff. So Canmore became the the, the hot ticket in the, the fast growing town. And so they, they basically throughout the that 30 year period would built by a lot in the new developments, build a house and we would live in it for a few years and then they would sell it and make some money and, and they just kept doing that. So they're really I think that kind of set the the tone of my life. Um, just kind of find a way to to do what you can do, and and uh, you know they had a, they had some real jobs now and then, but really most of the time they were working for themselves, kind of making their own living. Was your mom working on the house also? Yeah, she did a lot of the work, and she was before they got into you know building houses. She was. Um, a surveyor and my father was also uh he was working on paving crews in northern alberta and that's actually how they met um but back then you know it was good good pay and he would work all summer 18 hour days and and then uh come back and finish a house or whatever it was and and yeah he really he took the winters off um a lot of the time and just cuz he wanted to go skiing <laughs> that's awesome but you never you never were trained formally, right? Like you didn't ski on a. Well, no, I Alpine? like I did. Uh, he he was really, you know, he he saw that my brother and I were enjoying skiing, and he really, you know, he taught us. He he used to be a ski instructor as well. He was kind of a ski bum for a while, and um, yeah, to uh, I think I was about ten ten years old, and he had I think he felt that he had kind of taught us as much as he could and he, he put us in the Nancy Green ski race program and then oh, into Banff okay. Alpine Racers and yeah my parents were super supportive like racing is even back then was not I mean when you're young it's not terribly expensive but I, I took it until uh what age 16 okay um but yeah so I had some really good fantastic ski coaches mentors that are still good friends in my life today and um they they were great race coaches, but they also were amazing. Like, they just loved skiing and free riding. I guess before it was free riding, we would just 
as soon as we were done training, we'd just go and ski all over the mountain and they would, you know, they wanted us to, to become skiers. And, um, even on like, if, you know, growing up in the Rockies, there's not a ton of snow all the time, but when we were at the, at the resort and it was a powder day, they would just leave the gates in the van and and we'd go skiing. (laughs) Yeah. Same. Those are the best days ever. Yeah. So, uh, how was school for you? Uh, school was all right. Like uh, growing up in Canmore was really nice. Like, uh, probably 90% of the people I went to like preschool with, I graduated with and we had, you know, a small couple hundred kids graduated in my high school, uh, year there went 2000, 2001. And so I had, I have a lot of friends still to this day, you know, we're not as close. I don't live there anymore, but we definitely had a good circle of friends that had grown up together since the beginning. And, um, Canmore is really nice because there's, it was all just kind of wilderness before it got really overdeveloped. (laughs) And, uh, yeah, we, we just had free reign. We were just in the forest constantly all summer long playing guns, building forts and running around and just no, like no supervision. Um, but yeah, school itself, I, I wasn't a very, I, I was an okay student, but I was definitely distracted. I was always staring out the window or drawing something or anything that was interesting. I, I could, you know, learn and, and be okay at, but I was not a model. Were you always tinkering? Like you're clearly like all this work on this boot and, uh, you're like a spatial engineer of sorts. So were you, were you always kind of like that building things? Yeah, I was, I was really obsessed with, with, uh, building whatever I could. Like my favorite toy for the longest time was Legos. And mm-hmm. I just, we got pretty good collection. And then they, I remember kind of hit that age when all, all the kids in the neighborhood Legos weren't for them anymore. And, I went to a few garage sales and bought up all their stuff mm-hmm. and had a couple nice, like the technical, like technic stuff. And I spent, I don't even know how many, I, I remember my mom would come sometimes, like I'd be up in the middle of the night with a little flashlight, like digging mm-hmm. through Legos and they would hear me and I'd just be building stuff and they would come and like take my Legos away for a week or something. <laughs> so I, yeah, I was constantly like wanted to, wanted to build things and, it's kind of in me, I guess. And that's also part of, you know, being, having the opportunity to be in the ski industry as a professional free skier, as that was kind of evolving and taking, you know, becoming something and then working with Forefront. That's really what got me started Mm, working with that small ski brand and having the opportunity to, start to think about like ski design and eventually that led to like fully designing skis and even further going and building them. And then from there going and helping set up like a micro ski factory in Salt Lake city there. Right. Right. Mm -hmm. So that's been the trajectory. Mm -hmm. Um, so we'll take me back to 16. Like why did you stop uh, the ski race program and like, where'd you take it from there? Yeah, it's, it was, uh, I was the perfect candidate for the 1080 promotional video, um, Solomon Ski 1080, like they came out with that JP and all the new Canadian Air Force guys and they had that promotional video and I remember 
going, we went to uh, the Panorama ski area really early season for a speed camp. We were ski racing. And up until then, like, we were already kind of building little jumps and trying 360s and, like, no idea. And just we're just kids having fun. And yeah. even our some of our coaches would, like, hit jumps with us and they could do some 360s. And so we were already, a few of us were pretty into that. And then suddenly... This t- I remember being in the in the ski shop and this video came on, and I was just like, "This is like this is the coolest thing I've ever seen." And I I watched it like a hundred times. You know, it's just on a loop, and uh, pretty much that day I knew like ski racing was. I I liked racing and I had a lot of fun and I appreciated the experiences and and the technical training, but I was not like a not a very competitive person and, and definitely like a scrawny little kid. I wasn't, I was technically good at skiing around gates, but I, def, I definitely wasn't like a champion in the making. So mm-hmm. yeah, after that, it was like, I finished up that year of racing and then all I wanted to do was, was uh, jump and learn all these new tricks because at that time, like even growing up in Canmore, surrounded by a bunch of different ski areas, like skiing, was almost dead. There was only a handful of people that actually skied and they were all in ski racing and everyone else, like all, all the kids in the high school, anyone who went to the mountains, it was all snowboarding. Like in the nineties, it was crazy skiing, skinny skis and racing and no kid was, it wasn't cool. It was like the nerd, (laughs) the ski nerd thing. And, and so at that point to see a new style that was like exciting and new tricks and these new heroes it was just like captivating and it uh, yeah it took me away <laughs> well so how did you go from there to to getting your first opportunity to be in the films and to be recognized that way yeah i, I got really lucky i think i i mean was trying really hard and working you know i had a trend my dad set up in the backyard we had an awesome setup we had a giant rope swing he made us and uh, the normal like Costco trampoline, my brother and I flattened about three of those in our over mm-hmm. our childhood. But he built off of our deck like a diving platform off the second story deck onto the trampoline because he wanted us to just <laughs> go crazy, I guess. But so yeah, I learned all the tricks, watched the videos, studied everything, was just obsessed. And uh, he was really supportive. He would film a bunch of you know we did some big air comps and early stuff with the freestyle kind of Alberta freestyle kind of adopted this big air. They built one on the aerial site and went to a bunch of those early comps and got, you know, some footage and just, I had another buddy in high school who was really into filming and he had a somewhat decent camera for back then. And he, he put together some good stuff and I basically made these sponsor me demo like VHS tapes. Like I remember putting like, the original in the VCR and like transferring it over and recording it on the second VCR, like super <laughs> awesome. But I sent those out and um, to randomly to companies. I had a, a kind How of... How old are you at this time? Yeah, I was probably like 17. I was still in high school. Um, I had another mentor who was like the Sitski champion of the world for many years, downhill racer, uh, Stacy Kohut. And he actually was like, cause he had, he's been through, you know, the industry and he had sponsors and he actually really helped me wrote letters and helped like proofread my stuff and 
we were sending them out to Oakley and Rosignol and there was also a local ski shop, the Minot ski shop, Tatum's mm -hmm. uh, family mm -hmm. shop there out of Banff. And they, Peter Minot, one of the owners, like saw this new kind of free ride jibbing uh, trend that was coming up in skiing. And he, he put together like a team. It was really probably yeah. Canada's first like shop team, free ride skiers. And I was like the young, the youth junior kid on the team with some other really good skiers from that area that were all about 10 years older than me. And so, yeah, between getting on the shop team and sending out these videos, I got some pretty basic like gear sponsorships, like good for back then for sure. And for being a young kid and, um, that eventually I kept filming with my friend and then also got in with a few other like small time productions and started building up like a pretty good, demo reel I guess and um eventually I went to Argentina I got invited down there with my good friend Andrew Shepard who'd been like the kind of local legend 10 years older than me been filming and kind of pioneering that style of skiing and, and like trying to make something out of it in that area at least and uh he his good friend Dustin Lindgren who ended up working for Matchstick he bought a an a 16 millimeter film camera and put together just randomly a trip to Argentina. So I went down there, I got invited, they brought me down, we did some filming and with that kind of higher quality footage um, and good push from the, the rep of Oakley, like the, the team manager of Oakley Canada, like really sending it to matchstick and pushing, like you gotta, you gotta get this kid on the program and start filming him. And that, that really was the, the way in. Wow. <clears throat> so do you remember that early filming? Like how did you how did you know how to do it? Just from watching all the all the other ones? Like to go scope a line or to drop in <laughs> and communicate, like Yeah, I mean it was a big a big learning curve there and I ha I was with Andrew on that very mm -hmm. first like kind of that was the first substantial trip, first like ski trip out of the country really and like going somewhere exotic for me and yeah, we were definitely looking back, like we didn't really, we, we got some really good stuff, but mm -hmm. we weren't, we didn't have the experience. Dustin was brand new with his camera. Andrew was like the leader because he'd been working, doing, you know, filming for 10 years already. And um, yeah, it was so just kind of learning crew. from him. Yeah. yeah, you had a good career. Yeah, and, and you guys were kind of creating it, so you're motivated that way. Yeah, yeah, That's and we awesome. didn't even know, like Dustin didn't really have a solid like what he was going to do with the footage it never actually really went anywhere it was just like him he'd been to argentina he really liked it it was inex really inexpensive at that time and he just was like yeah called up his good buddy andrew happen. and said let's go down there i got this camera and andrew's like oh you got to bring this kid eric like he's coming up and he's really motivated and Put 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 in the good work as Dustin. He had no, I had met him actually once. He came through town. Uh, we actually went sled skiing on Boulder Mountain, um, and that like Andrew was all. I had many good. Another guy, Kevin Yurtis, who was he was like competing in, in the in the free ride comps, and also ten years older than me. And between him and Andrew, really like they were getting me out. Like I remember going to Minodes and buying trackers and skins and shovel and probe and like they kitted me out and 
started bringing me out in the backcountry a little bit and Andrew inviting us out to, to Revelstoke and we went up Boulder yeah. sled skiing. That was like a powder article way back in the day. Hmm. And I was just this, yeah, I'm like 17 year old kid that got towed up and we built some jumps. And <laughs> but yeah, it was, it's an interesting, like thinking back to it, there's so random. Everything it's all these connections. Together, yeah. But very fortunate. So can you, uh, I'm, I'm, I want to ask later what, what it was like to film your first, first matchstick part. Um, but maybe that wasn't even the most significant one. Is there, is there a, a line or two that stick out in your mind as something, things that you will always remember? Like, give me something that was, you're something you're really proud of. Um, and like, walk us through like what it feels like to the whole day. Oh man. <laughs> I mean, there's, yeah, there's a lot of, this has been... You have so many lines, it's insane, and I I just, I can't even pick one, because they're just one after another. I don't even, I don't even get it. Yeah, I mean, for me, the biggest, and there's one I I always think of, and for many reasons, but like, what was it, 2010, actually, a good friend, James Heim, another guy who's been filming with Matchstick for... Mm Heimer. Yeah, Heimer. He really put together this trip to the meager hot spring area, which is incredible mountain formation, volcanic, just north of Pemberton, and uh, has this fantastic hot spring at the base. And uh, a year or two prior to our trip, there'd been this massive, like one of Canada's largest landslides in recorded history, I think, like second or third largest. And it totally took out the whole valley and took out the road, the access used to be able to drive to these hot springs. So they were just like inaccessible um, and no one could get there. And at that time we had a friend, a couple friends in around the Whistler area that we'd done a lot of filming with uh, that had a helicopter. They had a helicopter company and one helicopter. And in the winter they were all about like finding these opportunities to, to work and film and fly us around. We did many trips to Braylorn, and um, in the summer they were utilizing the helicopter for more like industrial stuff, forest fi- forestry, forest fighting, firefighting, um, power line stuff. So helicopter was relatively unused, so they were really excited and helpful. And we, yeah, we had this helicopter. We <laughs> had an area that was no one could get to, incredible mountains, and like it was a total renegade not really allowed, but Heimer had this dream and vision and put together this amazing trip when we went out there. Is this with Matchstick? Because I remember this. Yeah, Yeah. with Matchstick. And um, we were out there for almost, I think, four weeks. Like, we were there for maybe three weeks and then took a little break, flew home, and then came back in for another week. And it was a really good snow year and, like, huge amounts of snow. And right away when we flew in, I, I remember the first time, like, it's just, there's such meager peak in the plinth and the Mount Job. There's just these, like, Alaskan fluted spined out, like, super big, gnarly mm-hmm. ski descents that a lot of, like, the hardcore locals out of Pemberton snowmobile access. And we actually met them out there a few times. Like, it's a huge endeavor to get out there and super impressive, but... Yeah, right away we saw... Like, you met them with your helicopter? Yeah, yeah. At the banks of a hot spring? Well, they didn't come to the hot spring because the hot spring's way out of the way, mm-hmm. and they were just going there to ride But that's these, where you guys were camping. Yeah, right? they mm-hmm. they were going there to ride these, like, insane 
right, sled wow. sled mountaineering, skiing and snowboarding lines, like probably I don't know anyone else right, that's gets after it like athleticism. That. And yeah, we would see them like the first time we met them, uh we were just parked, we were looking at this one area and we got dropped off to do a test like check out a slope kind of beside where we wanted to so ski. So it was just you two, uh, a filmer. Did you bring a guide? Did you bring people for safety? Yeah, like- we we had uh, we had Ingrid and we had um, we went through a couple guides. Like they brought them in. My buddy Marty Schaefer came in for a oh, bit, nice. and we had two Gregs. Um, and we just kind of hired guides and oh, as gotcha. we could for because they couldn't stay the whole time. But uh, yeah, just kind of pieced it all together and. Um, nice work, Heimer. Yeah, he Heimer is he's really organized and good at putting that kind of stuff together for sure. Um, but yeah, those snowmobilers, like the first day we were up there and pretty early in the morning and we got dropped off and then suddenly our pilot, Jake, like radios, he's like, yeah, there's just like three snowmobilers just pulled up to the heli and we're wow. like, what the, how <laughs> the hell? Because they had to make their own river crossing and like it's like a three-day epic wow. just to get out there. And they, yeah, it's huge respect. So we like, yeah, that's like, yo, you guys ski this. Like that's what they came to ski and ride. They're mostly snowboarders. And then, so we just moved down Valley and did something else. And then another, the one of the times we actually were skiing off of the meager, like proper, the, some, the, the big spine wall, those guys, uh, yeah, it was like seven in the, you know, it's springtime, April, first light and we're like lifting we lift off and we fly into the alpine and we're looking and like we look down and they're like already almost at the top on their snowmobiles it was crazy and then we had like a party shred with them it was (laughs) really they were super nice um but yeah the the line is right off the summit of meager down the shoulder there's this there was this like spine super steep spine face that then continued into like a massive spine. Like the whole line is well over 2,000 feet. Wow. But just getting, I got dropped off and it was like the gnarliest downhill sidestepping ice crust from the sun and like just thousands of feet of exposure and just gripping just to like get into the top of it. And we had waited like that was at the end of our trip. That was the very the very end, and that we knew like that was the jewel face of mm. the whole area, and we patiently, you know, we chipped away, built up our local knowledge in the snowpack and our confidence, and like just were waiting for that prime, the perfect day. And we, yeah, luckily we got it and got to ski that line, and it was just yeah. Every time I watch it, I'm like get nervous mm-hmm. and it, it doesn't look it's not like the craziest line but it's just so steep and so exposed and so long and yeah i ended i skied through and got through the spines and it was just victory shredding this huge continual spine out the bottom and getting to like the last little crux and pr- getting a little bit tired at that point because it's a pretty long <laughs> run and I'd been skiing on kind of the shaded, more of the kind of north aspect of the spine, and it tipped over, and I I kind of airplane turned over to the more solar aspect, more of an east aspect, and it, after dropping that much elevation, was completely cut off, like 
caught off guard mm. by bad, like a crust, basically a breakable crust. And I was going very fast above still mm. pretty high consequence stuff. And I ended up actually blowing my knee because I skipped out and just my one ski dug in and hyper compressed my uh, leg. And so it was like the, the, that story of going from the highest high to the wow. lowest low. And then I still had a long way to ski out of there to get out. And luckily I wasn't, like I didn't really actually fall. I just kind of rolled over. But it was just an it awkward, go. yeah, I was screaming at the top. It was mm. a, one of the more painful things because I didn't fully uh, tear the ACL. I'd like 80% tore it or something. Mm. So then the nerves are still there and it was, yeah, it was not nice. And that was the end of my trip and the end of my season but yeah that line <laughs> I look back and I'm like oh, I wonder if I would do that again <laughs> wow that was an awesome story mm -hmm. yeah these will all like this is the stuff I want to go into a mm -hmm. bit more with this like the film project with Matchstick or there's so many there's way too many stories but we got to right. kind of like find those stories and I think that's like going to be Mm -hmm. one that should be highlighted just because for me it means a lot and then it was like really the worst injury I've had in my career knock on wood just wasn't, one wasn't one that ACL bad. yeah wow but I've heard a, a lot of things but not that was the only um surgery required repair so significant for me but I got, I got away pretty luckily like it was just the the ligament was partially torn it was a long story of how I got dealt with that, but there wasn't much. I I bruised a tibial plateau, tibial plateau but in that, because of the knee was so bent and hyperflex compressed when it impacted, it didn't like mash up the cartilage or the meniscus. So mm. that stuff, all that tissue that they can't really repair, they can just cut out, was all relatively okay. And so I made it. I think a very easy recovery just from having the ACL surgery mm -hmm. and came back and don't think of it too much. It doesn't bother me. So that's very fortunate. <laughs> it seems like skiing is so easy for you. Are there, do you have any stories about actually like getting gripped and then moving through it or, you know, anything about overcoming fear? Yeah. Well, I mean, it's always the fear is what, is part of the the formula i think like all these big lines all the stuff in in the films like it's Hugh, one of my favorite quotes uh from hugo harrison is i remember him saying it's like mm -hmm. yep if you're, if you're not, not scared, scared it's, not it's not gonna, gonna be in the movie it's yeah. not gonna make the movie so yeah. um but yeah you have to trust yourself and you have like the the whole activity that we do of skiing in the mountains big lines and that kind of stuff is really um, an experience-based activity. Dang. And, and <laughs> yeah. The French just went on. I know. <laughs> Sorry about that. Anyone listening? Can Anyways, plug it? I, don't, I can try. Pull it up. Oh, did you hear that? That was the sound of freedom. <laughs> <laughs> Lubrication. <laughs> He's so nervous. Yeah, right. He's been on just like... PR train. Uh, but yeah, talk about fear and overcoming fear. Yeah, I think I, I 
like fear is really a big part of the formula of what we do as professional skiers. You know, you're basically challenging yourself, your abilities and your decision-making and your skill set and your experience. So fear really, you have to be <laughs> very in tune with your fear and you have to be um, willing to like deal with it. And, and yeah, you're, Every time you're scared, really, if you're doing something significant, that's that's pushing your abilities. And how do you, you know it's the right decision then? Like, how do you know when when you're scared and it's okay, or you're scared and it's it's something to step off of? I think that's magic. <laughs> I don't. Yeah, it's. Uh, I think now it's e It's a lot easier for for me with so many years. You know, oh, well over a decade of doing what I do. And just to have that experience base, you know, it's such a conditioned dependent sport and the variables of, of snow and avalanche, you know, danger possibility is really like, it, it, it's the ruling <laughs> factor and you have to be aware of it and pay attention. And I think having a lot of experience and getting, you know, getting away, getting lucky, getting hurt, seeing things happen, seeing bad accidents, you basically build up like that experience that allows you to look to when you're, when you're making your next decision. And really it comes down to like how you're feeling and how you feel about the whole situation and the fear keeps it real and it keep it keeps you sharp. And, and yeah, for me, I somehow, sometimes I just know I'm like, yeah, I'm, I'm terrified, but I'm completely focused and I'm really comfortable and confident in this situation and environment. Yes, I'm scared of like what I'm attempting to do, but I also think back to all the, everything I've done and like I, tr I start trusting my myself and my decisions. And I've I, seen times where you like, you come off of one air and like you barely touch down on another landing and you're like taking off on one ski and you fully pull it off. <laughs> like how, how do you do that? Nobody does that. No. Nah. Well, there's no, there's a lot of, I mean, that's just pushing, that's just pushing your abilities. Like you're, you're skiing or whatever you're doing to, to the maximum of what you can do. And you're, what do you attribute it to? Do you attribute it to like, you're looking ahead, like you can, you see where you want to go, like where in those yeah, moments, like, what is it? I think for me, uh, the big part of that puzzle is taking the time to really study what you're about to do. And that's why like ski touring and pillow lines and these technical like terrain sort of micro features that I've really found a niche or like, that's what I love to do. Yeah. Um, it gives you that opportunity where you just have so much time to look and like mm -hmm. study things from many different perspectives, Get take a lot of photos. And, and yeah. And like yeah. you really start all the best stuff you see in the films is like that example of the meager line. Like mm -hmm. that's four weeks of work or yeah. even last year, the one big line, we had one day in the heli out of Whistler and like, exactly. It was four weeks of going out every day we could on the snowmobiles and trying and trying and trying. And finally it was like, we knew, okay, it's good. And you can, what do you mean trying on the snowmobiles? Well, just like you're out there every day and you're mm -hmm. trying to like, film and get information on, on what's happening with the snow. And you're looking and at the big stuff. You're you looking at do. the big stuff and you know like I have the 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 luxury of I've know I've filmed around that that area 
around between Pemberton and Braylorn. And so we know, you know, like, you You've know, the, the kind of hit yeah. list of where you want to try and go. And you are, you have those experiences where you know what it takes, what kind of conditions. So, um, and you basically are just trying to like put yourself out there to, to do what you can and observe. And then when the, the conditions really come together and then hopefully you're organized and you can actually capitalize on that and totally. put yourself in those situations. Um, I hate this question, but a lot of people ask it. So how about avalanches? Have you been caught in an avalanche? Uh, I mean, I, I definitely have been caught in a few avalanches. Um, never been buried, never like really under the snow. Very fortunately, I've been around some big avalanches. I've dug people out that weren't fully buried, but I've definitely seen, you know, you're in, in that environment and you're pushing it. And especially in the early years where you really didn't, didn't know enough or you're just learning, like you get in bad situations mm -hmm. that you might not even have realized that you're in. Um, but fortunately it all, we got, a, we got away with some things and, um, and then now like the, uh, the other argument is now you're so, you have so much experience and you get so comfortable and then you become complacent. So it's mm -hmm. always like trying to stay sharp, but yeah, I mean, what was it? Two years ago, uh, get one of my best friends, Chris Rubens and I got caught completely off guard in the Rockies on a fly in base camp to the fresh fields and, you know, conditions were pretty good been a lot of wind but everything there was just like locked down it felt like like super firm you were barely you know you're just nice for skiing big lines but not like really good powder and basically a hard slab with some weakness down not very common weakness and that that particular slope was probably a bit of a sun crust because it, it was a shaded slope that just got a bit of light for the morning and, uh, yeah, we were just boot packing up, like barely like perfect boot packing, just toe towing in up this nice little steep headwall, kind of making the most out of the stuff we wanted to go ski, got too hot, got too baked out, too much sun. And we're just like, Oh, we'll just go up this little headwall and it's got this nice like back lid and it'll be a good little quick little shot here. And we had to cross a Bertrand it's all glaciated and got on about like went way around this Bertrand and up on the face and I was breaking trail and just like felt really good and suddenly it felt like hollow and, and weird and I'm sinking in a little bit more and I, I said to Chris I'm like hey wait a second like it's not something has changed here it's not very good and I think we had just got to like a thinner part of this loaded pocket and there's some rocks mm -hmm. close to where we were and he's like, okay, yeah. Uh, he's just a few steps behind. He's like, I'll, I'll come and like check it out, what you're feeling, you know, because going first is really the only way you're, once you have a boot pack, you don't really feel have the same sensation. And he took one more step and this whole panel of the head wall ripped out probably yeah, 60 centimeters to a meter. And we were just like surfing. We were, had our skis on oh, our pack wow. and suddenly we we're accelerating backwards going down the slope like just it was it was caught us <laughs> by like so off so it broke off above you yeah pretty much we're right at the top uh -huh. like we hit the thin we tickled the thin spot and it was like a really strong hard slab mm. and just sitting on 
a sun crest from before the previous storm and we just found the found the trigger and yeah it was terrifying because we had walked around this huge mm. big bergschrund and suddenly we're going backwards with Thank our skis on our pack mm-hmm. and like I turned turned around Chris was right pretty much beside me or just behind me and like just watching this hard slab panel exploding into a, a giant crevasse bergschrund and launching out the other side and like just I just remember like jumping as hard as I could at, like just waiting just like oh hold on uh-huh. and just like when we both like it wasn't it was a, a, a negative like we weren't going to go in mm. into it but it it basically was like huge hole surfing on a hard slab into a, a ice wall like the imp- it was it felt like getting hit by a car like uh-huh. basically just we both just boom like exploded lost everything we ended up like not buried at all and Luckily, the filmers were in a position. They were not in the best spot, but they were just outside of what happened, and they were right there, like the instant help. But we were both on the surface. But yeah, it was that was one of the more <laughs> terrifying uh, <laughs> experiences, and really just caught off guard. Like we we were too comfortable. We just felt like it, everything. We hadn't seen any activity, and everything mm. just felt really good. But when you get to those hard, those persistent layers that are buried, you know, a meter down, and with a hard bridge snowpack, it's really you wouldn't have known. You just don't. Yeah, it's 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 so inconsistent. So yeah, you know, we're always trying to be very aware and cautious and thinking as much as you can. Like just what can go wrong, where you're at, situational awareness, terrain management. And that's like most of these trips, all the film trips is we are always working with a guide, you know, and that's like the guide isn't guiding us. Let's say the guide might be having good recommendations, but the guide is really like helping us, you know, analyze the snow and also just like keeping people, everyone's focused in on their, I'm going to ski this line. The Mm -hmm. filmer's like, I got to get this shot. It's just so good to have a professional with a lot of experience and training in your crew with the bigger picture looking. He doesn't care about the shot. He's like, Oh, why are they standing over there? That's, that's ridiculous. Mm -hmm. And just to have like a safety, someone that that's, remove themselves from the, like the activity yeah, of getting objective. of getting the shots yeah. and with a lot of training is is super important and that's something uh any shout outs to those guides because it's it's so true uh you know the film skiers get all the glory but uh there's so much behind the scenes and i think i like to try to acknowledge the the guides that are creating that that safety yeah i mean it is we've had so many good guides um you know some that aren't it's a really hard job for it's a guy so because they don't get to ski anything. Right. They're not like and your their normal is their responsibility. Their normal ski guiding is like heli skiing right. and, and they're fun, going or ski touring and they're they're taking people around and they're skiing the runs first and they're making all the the decisions and like for them to get sidelined and just be like, Okay, well I don't think, you know, I'm gonna look at the snow and what do you guys think? And like working with them and but some of them, it's all the personality, but some of them really, I think they appreciate like the amount of work and detail and the process that we're trying to do and like all these great shots that everyone sees, like the backstory and the like the production that went on to get there 
is is a, an impressive amount of work a lot of the time. So the right guide who sees that and and can appreciate it, the, they're usually really great to work with. But yeah, we've had, I mean, Marty Schaefer, Kapow, he's awesome to work with because he's also a very good skier. Um, yeah, I mean, there's so so many. Even my buddy Kevin Yurtis, who is one of my mentors, now he's a guide. Um, we've worked with him a lot at the camps and Martin Lefrev, um, another Canadian in the Banff area, uh, Kirk Becker and Brent Phillips on the coast, um, Isaac Kamek from, and he's out of Revelstoke now. Like there's, there's a lot of the new era of, of these ski guides in Canada. They're all fantastic skiers and hard workers and they love, you know, the, they love actually like teaching and explaining what's it's not just like they're the guide and you do what they say and like they're that kind of error of, of guiding I think is fading phased out the ACMG has evolved um I'm I'm just re referring to all the Canadian stuff because that's what I'm I know but yeah there's a lot of of great guides out there that will work very well with a, a, a film crew and and do an amazing job and and become an essential part of the team totally so take me back to the that first film shoot with matchstick when you got your big break how yeah. old are you well paint us the picture well this this is a i think it's one of my favorite memories and stories because of the struggle <laughs> it's always the journey mm -hmm. If you have a hard, uh, not a hard, but like if you have adversity and like it's a struggle and then in the end you, you, you pull it together somehow and make it happen. That's like the, so much sweeter. Yeah. You mm -hmm. have that, that gratification. It's like, if everything is always easy, then okay, that's great. But, um, so yeah, the first year where matchstick was like, okay, basically uh, my friend Dustin Lindgren, the filmer, and I got in at the same time. Like du du they saw Dustin's footage and they saw my skiing in the footage. And they're like, "All right, these two guys are, you know, keen and they have some potential." And Dustin is like, has a long history of, you know, working with his brother on kayak film projects, and like he's really he he likes to find new things and he's adventurous and he's like one of those people that's just a connector like he'll stop on the side of the road and start talking to someone and next thing you know that guy's like knows someone and you've got like a sweet line on whatever it is that that he knows and like <laughs> so he's just one of these In people the flow, sounds like and he nice. had uh, been very like keen and this is right when Micah Helly skiing started basically and he'd oh, so heard that... about this the new tenure and this new operation and like in the Rockies, but it has snow and he was just amped about it. He's like, we got it. And he called them and basically talked to the marketing guy and like got some agreement, no minimums on the heli and this and that, and like work this deal and put that in to matchstick with myself. And it's like, okay, yeah, you guys should go. And they just sent the two of us like on our own no oh, one. Wow. It's not even like a real matchstick trip, but they're like, oh, well, Dustin's got some line. Eric's got, like, I had, I think, three grand. It was from Oakley. It was all all the money. Like, they finally, at that point, or not finally, but the, at that point, they were like, okay, here's, like, a retainer. And I was just like, I'm going to take that and put it. I want to go filming. Like, mm -hmm. this is what my big you, chance. What are you, 17, 18? Yeah, probably. That was, uh, I was 21 then. I okay. Was, I was 21, so... 
a couple of years after. It takes time. <laughs> after like, so going to Argentina, Argentina and, trip and, mm-hmm. and this and, uh, yeah. So, so we, had you decided to go to college at all or? No, no. I, so yeah. you were, were you just, were you focused? Were you like I trying to do this pro ski thing? hundred percent driven. I wow. never even considered. I basically left high school as soon as I possibly could. I finished like a semester early with the bare minimum amount of credits and just got the heck out of there so I could go <laughs> skiing. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, that was my primary focus. Um, so this was like the big break. And to get like them, you know, the call from the match that guys like, okay, yeah, you guys should go, you figure it out. It's all up to you. And, uh, so yeah, Dustin and I ended up in Revelstoke and like later in, you know, this was in probably April by then the whole thing had got pushed back and all the, all the trials and, you know, the process of just getting there. And we ended up there, and it was, like, the very end of their season. And conditions were so-so. It was raining. We didn't know. And then suddenly, like, our opportunity for this this deal uh, that that the marketing guy had, had promised Dustin with no minimums on the helicopter, which basically meant you could go in, and if it's bad weather, you're not paying for the helicopter because the standard way of doing it is... As soon as you're there, even if you're not using the helicopter, you got to pay an hour, an hour and a half a day, which, which is approximately. Yeah, back then it's like uh, probably it was a bit cheaper back then, but I think it was we would have been paying, you know, a thousand bucks a day or something. Well, it's a lot cheaper. Usually, yeah. it's like three grand a day yeah, minimum yeah. for but, an hour. But uh, yeah, so suddenly that deal was gone because the heli there helicopter agreement or contract with the, the heli company was over. And mm-hmm. so the helicopter was had to come out or something. So basically we're sitting there in the rain and suddenly mm-hmm. we can't, we're thinking, okay, well we can go in there for like a week and afford that. It's all, I'm going to pay for the whole thing. There's no other athletes. There's nothing. I brought in uh, Andrew Shepard, my mentor, because he was a big part of all of this. And we, I needed someone to ski with and someone mm-hmm. that could help help with the whole thing. And also uh, Damian Cromwell, another oh, yeah. great friend. He was a, the photographer, brought him in because, like, we had a helicopter. So, <laughs> But, yeah, we were all in Revelstoke, and this the minimum deal was gone, and it's bad weather. And basically, like, oh, f- with three grand, you know, we could – rent a snowmobile and film out of Revelstoke for a month and like, fit, and like try and like get something like, are we going to go that fly in there and sit for two days and, and fly out and have nothing. And that's the end of it. And in the end, we just went, we just like pulled the trigger at last, like 11th hour drove all the way out to Micah dam and like ne- tried to negotiate. And it was this big, you know, I was just pretty young at that time. No idea. And Dustin was really hammering, trying and yeah, flew in there. It was kind of whatever the first day and, we had a, the, their guide, Craig Ellis, who also was a, a super interesting guy and actually did a, a really good job. And yeah, we ended up getting like two perfect bluebird days, no yeah. wind, pretty good stability. And we flew all over the tenure and just got like some really, like one of the best shots. I still like the one, a really good line right out of the, <laughs> out of the gate. And um, that like without up, any study, anything, you just sent it. Well, yeah, we stud- like studied it and lined it all up, but like 
just to go in there for two days and, and get those kind of conditions and then ski a good line, a long line with big errors and not crash and not mm-hmm. have any issues. Like was look back at that. It was like, that was, mm-hmm. I mean, you can't go anywhere for two days to go skiing. That's like in the, in the wilderness, that's crazy. And so it all, like we had a golden horseshoe and we got really some, not a ton of footage, but for two days, like in a small crew, skeleton crew, one camera and a photographer, we, we did a fantastic job. We took advantage of the fortune of good conditions. And, uh, yeah, that was, that was it. I sent that film in and the match hit guys were super pumped and they invited me down to, uh, the final, it was super park six, the last super park they ever had down in Mount bachelor. So I ended up down there and, yeah, hanging out with Abma and like got to know, you know, that was the year Candy to the insane like cork nine to the rail. Mm-hmm. I don't even know what the tricks I don't I don't know tricks, but um yeah, I was hitting all the big jumps, so I got some some nice shots off jumps and that combined I just had like a mini forty second segment in that first matchstick movie I was in the uh yearbook. That was the one, huh? Yeah. And, no way. But though they were You and really, Ingrid. Yeah, they were really pumped. Yeah, like Ingrid killed it that year. She went to Bella Coola with Hugo and Abma and mm-hmm. that was Abma's first big year really? too. Huh. And so I just had this like fraction. I remember watch going to Freshival in Calgary and watching the film and seeing anything and I was like so pumped and then I watched the movie and it's like, oh <laughs> all that all that stuff and it's like thirty seconds. I shared a part with like Vinnie Dorian and <laughs> Yannick B and but it was awesome, and that that really opened up. That's how I got in, and they were psyched that I was some young kid that could ski lines and hit jumps. So it was kind of at that time that was like the cutting edge, bringing the back or the park to the backcountry or the right. jibbing to the backcountry, which I never actually ended up doing. <laughs> <laughs> wow, that was awesome. So it was like ten years of that. Yeah. Like how how did it how did you make this it was it was that and then and then all of a sudden you were this new guy again who was skinning for all of his lines. Like how did you make that transition? Well yeah, once again we cuz I've been ski touring since I was a teenager and like always on trackers and limited gear and we did some big days and like figuring it out and but still pretty inexperienced and it was actually Dustin Lindgren again to really, through his connections and networks and Damian Cromwell, we got uh, lined up to go into Century Lodge mm. at Golden Alpine Holidays. I think that was uh, 2006, 2007. And then suddenly we're flying into this like amazing setting of pillows all around and perfect snow and we're ski touring on trackers and like we got a bunch of really good footage. Mm. And that, that's like, that's where we learned like Rubens, myself, Abma, a bunch of Heimer, like we really like putting ourselves in these backcountry lodges and touring around the pillow zones for a week to 10 days to two weeks at a time. That I, I look at that as like our learning, our education on like ski touring, filming and pillow lines. And it became very clear like that if you want to get really good conditions, easy access and lots of shots. That's the place to go. And that eventually, like I remember struggling 
you know, mod- modifying trackers and trying all this stuff. And I was I had some Technica, like race boots and dr- Dremeling, and I put some kind of walk mode and just like wanting to, to be able to go to be more efficient because yeah. it was super painful. And luckily, we're in our 20s, so you don't feel pain. But like <laughs> if I had to go back to that equipment now, I would be, oh, it'd be horrible. <laughs> and yeah, eventually that led to, I I remember. your boots. Yeah, it was uh, early season, probably festival time or whatever, premiere time. I was in Calgary. I went to the big like mountain equipment co-op and that's when I first saw the Dina Fit I think it was the Zeus boot at the time, which was like the first like real four buckle overlap boot, walk mode, and it had interchangeable soles, which I was like, this is sweet. Like I, cause I didn't even care about, I had no, I no intention of the bindings, the tech bindings at that time. I was just like, I want a boot that I can walk in and be a bit more comfortable and, and, and do more skiing while I'm out there. So, um, that kind of planted the seed, and then the next, I think it was the next year, I contacted the, the DinaFit North American guys through another shop in Whistler, one of the long, long-time shops there, the Escape Route, uh, Jason and James. The owners kind of put me in touch with the North American guys, and and they, yeah, okay, yeah, well, let's send you a pair of the Titan boots, and we'll throw in some of the, the vertical FT12s, like their highest in, you know, burliest binding at the time. And yeah, I got the boots and started skiing in them and did a b- bunch of like. And that was what year? Ish? 2010, 2011. Okay. Um, <clears throat> yeah, because we'd been up at the lodges for like three years already at that point or four years. But yeah, I got the boots, did a bunch of mods, was skiing them early season, and then we flew into to Meadow and Century. We had a two week trip, and I I mounted up one of my early pairs of Renegades. I had two pairs, one with Alpine bindings and my Trekkers, and the other pair with these FT12s. And it was the first film trip of the season, so okay, like we're starting out pretty conservative. We got to figure out the snow. We got to get warmed up. We got to you know just get get our legs under us really and so I just started skiing in in the DinaFit bindings and instantly I was like wow this is so much much better and Mm -hmm. so much lighter and quick to transition and no more trekkers in my pack and no more breaking trekkers and alpine day wreckers yeah so (laughs) and I just started filming in them and it was great snow and just kind of ramped up and by after that first week at Meadow I had like done the entire week in the DinaFit bindings in the DinaFit boots and, with no issues. And but I was like, all right, let's keep going. And then that just like, that was the entrance into it all. And I never looked back and I don't have Alpine gear anymore. So you don't, you didn't have any problems with the, the pin bindings? I mean, there was a learning curve. I had uh, the, I remember after a few days and we're up at the hut there. So they're, the skis are living outside and Suddenly I'm walking around. We actually had some nice weather, so we were up in the Alpine on hard snow, kind of wind slab going across this ridge, kind of kicking in, and suddenly I'm, like, walking out of my skis, Mm. and they're locked, and it shouldn't happen. And I didn't really know what was going on. I had no experience, so I'm like, did I break, like, the little springs or 
started looking and it turned out just being that super common problem where if you use them day after day after day and they never thaw out, you get the ice block mm -hmm. underneath the little spring assembly of the jaws of the toe piece. And it took me a while to like, you know, 20 minutes up there. And then I saw, I'm like, oh, there's a huge chunk of ice underneath. Uh, that makes sense. I cleaned it out and then just kept going. And I mean, I had a few popping out of the heel on some weird impact where a normal binding wouldn't, but overall, like I was getting the shots I wanted. I was skiing everything I wanted and, and hitting it pretty hard. And like hitting you, it, you've yeah. really tested these yeah. things. Hitting it really hard and it worked. And so did you hear that folks? Like, and I would agree with that too. Like as long as you, you make sure that this binding doesn't have ice, it, I've never had a problem, but when I've seen problems happen is when there's ice buildup that you didn't, you weren't aware of. Yeah. It's a super common, like when I'm coaching up at the camps and it's like one of the main things I always, cause I see it happen all the time. And it mostly happens when you're walking up and you think it's locked and then suddenly your skis are coming off. Mm -hmm. And, uh, yeah, it's just a learning curve. It's like Alpine bindings. If you don't know to, to clean off the snow off the bottom of the surface of your sole of your boot, you gonna... step in, you're going to come out because right. it, the binding's not properly closed. So, like anything mechanical, take care of your gear. Thing that's take care in of you. in the snow, yeah, you gotta you gotta learn the little details, and and once you do that, usually it's pretty good. But wow, that's it's a really cool story. <laughs> <clears throat> but then from there, after that trip, so we filmed for two weeks. I came out. I had all this GoPro footage. I drove to Canmore, had a shower, did my laundry, had a flight to Europe the very next day, kind of invited myself to ISPO. And it was like the next day. And I <laughs> flew I on the plane. I edited this little free ride touring edit with this stuff and flew right into ISPO, into Munich, never been there. Took a train, got to the trade show. It's like nine o'clock at night. It's all locked up. I'm walking around with the ski bag and backpack and <laughs> duffel bags and, and right into like the Dinafit party. I found a way in. Someone, <laughs> some janitor let me in the side door and like I'm right into this party and like all my So you weren't stuff. even one of their athletes at this point. I was like pushing. I had met the the brand managers and they had come through Canada through that sh that shop, the Escape Route. That we had a nice dinner and like kind of made a face to face established an interaction or connection and then yeah i was like i'm coming <laughs> i showed up there and right into the party scene and you know that was fun but the, the bottom line was i had this awesome you I were gonna was, revolution i had this sport. edit and i gave i right. am like look at like this is what your bindings because they don't they no one's ever done that well i, mean, I think in canada and north america people were skiing on them pretty aggressively on fat skis and in europe people were skiing huge descents and like mountaineering like crazy stuff really good stuff had been done on the dinafit system but in north Not america massive pillow binds, no <laughs> no it's different but it was the boots that held it back the bindings were unchanged mm. at that point they were the same fritz bartles original design like some cosmetic stuff, but like it's a 30 year old design. They're still making it to this day in many imitations throughout the industry. It's such a well designed engineered product. Uh, I mean, it's not perfect. Nothing is, but that says a lot. And, mm -hmm. but no one had, yeah, the boots hadn't been developed into like a skiing performance boot until that point. And then I was just, once again, like the perfect guy in the perfect spot, the mm -hmm. perfect age doing the right thing. And it all came together 
And I went there and I was like, yeah, like, look, like your stuff, look at the, what, what can go, like you, they were in a different world. Like they're running up doing 3000 meters in a matter of hours in spandex on skis that are 67 millimeters wide and one sixties. And they're all about just like, that's the core of the brand is the racing. Mm -hmm. Like a lot of European industries. Yeah. Like ski industry stuff. It's all Alpine or Ronnie, anything competitive, that's the highest end, the top, the cutting technology, all the trends. But in, in North America here, where people just wanting to go ski touring to get to powder because there's no ski resorts. There's a handful of ski resorts, and they're all busy and blown out. And, like, if you want to go ski fresh powder, you go ski touring. You got to earn it. <laughs> and so, yeah, it was like that that link between those two worlds. and So what did it take for them to actually listen to this punk Canadian kid that they could care less? <laughs> well, it took a few years, actually. Like, that happened, and I showed them all this stuff, and it, the craziest thing I found out, I think it was the next year, I did all this, and I came back to ISPO, and then they're like, oh, yeah, by the way, uh, we want to introduce you to this, our new engineer, Fred, Fred Anderson, and he was a Swedish guy my age, and used to compete on the world tour and he's this like you know pretty hard charging skier from sweden and he had come up with the the ideas for the beast and like they had had him like he was there when i first started talking to them but they didn't know me or trust me i didn't i wasn't invited into this circle of trust so like i had all these like oh i want you know like we could make this system like beef up the heel and i had like very amateur and very immature but i had some desire for sure and they're like, oh, yeah, well, here's this guy. And he look at what he's doing. And I was like, are you kidding me? He's been here the whole time? Like, <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, then Fred and I had a couple good years of hanging out. And I would, I would just go to Europe and show up at the office. And people would be, be walking around, you know, all these Germans, <laughs> like really proper. And everyone's professional. It's like a real company. And there's this scruffy <laughs> guy, beard, and big, huge skis and kind of weird looking and just walking around like in all these like in the testing facilities and they're like who are you like why are you here and I'm like well I'm yeah I'm working with you guys now basically I would sleep on the couch in the office or Fred had this tiny little flat like half the size of this hotel room and sleep on the floor and like we would work we had a, a really good time and that was the beginning of the whole beast project and that was the next chapter for me like getting in and and really like I I did a lot of testing and I didn't do any of the design or engineering like I'm not that clever or trained to to do any of that but it was like it was awesome that this such a hardcore uphill performance company had like gone in this crazy tangent and they were they did they did a relatively good job like the beast was released at least one year too early and it looking back, like they could have taken that extra year and really polished and found all the little intricacies and like, it's such a complicated mechanism. So it suffered from a lot of problems after it was released because it like, as it came out, we already knew a bunch, you know, it's like, well, there's these issues. And so that was a learning, a big learning um, experience for me. And I think for the company as well, but in the end, it was a lot of fun, and that was like the next chapter with Dinafit for free riding and for myself. And then, the, then it, like at at the same time, that actually was the Vulcan was the free ride boot. Their first like real free ride boot was coming, and I was really pushing, going 
on those same trips down to Italy and, and really like pushing on the, the footwear team. There's a couple of really good guys that were inviting me and like listening and we would argue, but in the end they were open at least to, to these crazy ideas, I guess, or not ideas, just like a, a different perspective from the European and theories. And, yeah. And yeah. I love it. <clears throat> but yeah, so that all kind of played out and had a lot of fun and then it kind of, didn't go stagnant, but there was definitely a, a few years of like the footwear team all left and there was a new team and there just wasn't a lot of, there wasn't any more like personal connection. I was kind of still forcing myself in there, but they weren't, you know, we didn't have a good working relationship and eventually those people left and they brought in, an, you know, another new team and, and that's who we're working with now. And that's mm. the only, like there's two, two major reasons or like the two things that that allowed this new hoji boot to really come into the product line were obviously fritz mentoring and working endlessly so much passion and, and effort and just genius ideas and applying all of his knowledge and experience into the project and then the new footwear team like the leader claudio he's 100 percent like fritz and him and i just like and every time we go and work with them, it's just like, we need this, we need that, we need this, this is what it costs, this is how we can do it. And it's just like very transparent, yes, no, what can we do? And and it and like this boot, really, they only started industrializing it or like really bringing it into the product line. It's like barely been over a year. Mm. So it's it's really... It's like all that Or like a year up. and a half. Like it, yeah, and Fritz and I had been working on it. This is now like four years. Mm -hmm. And we'd been, you know, we were presenting it and we had all these ideas, but it took the right team, you know, the new guy, Claudio, coming in really to like, he saw, he's Take like, these him. guys are super passionate and they're working and this is working and we need to do this. And he just like took it by the reins and and did an incredible amount of work and, and aligned the team. And, and now, yeah, the, the end result, the product, the OG pro tour is, uh, I'm, I'm in love with it. I'm so happy. It's blowing me away every day. And like just today having a big group of people, 20 pairs probably on the snow, all different people, different feet and just skiing in them. And like people are happy and, it's working and it's like today was like the a bit of a validation of like all those four years of hard work and fighting and effort and testing and breaking and the journey awesome yeah. journey but it's like it's coming it's turning the corner to like okay we've we've started something yeah you've revolutionized something yeah, so. so i mean what have you learned over you didn't go to college and and now you've been working with this big brand with with budgets and and across cultural differences and you don't speak the same languages there's italians and there's germans like uh, what have you learned from from all of this would you say on the business side international diplomacy <laughs> <laughs> no it's like yeah it's it's been a huge learning curve and it, it all started even with forefront working with them in in salt lake and just like an idea is great and making something that works is is awesome but then taking that and and like building it into a, an efficient way of making something industrializing it and creating a product that has 
a following and like people want it and it does something it performs well like that's mm-hmm. there's like so many levels and steps yeah, and it fits ob- within the branding and, yeah obviously and with the, the bigger company the- like forefront is easy because i'm on the ground level and it's a very small yeah, you're niche not company make, right and, and so how, how much money does it cost like how, how much money do you think it it's cost to create this and then to manufacture it and then every I mean, size is like another hundred thousand dollars, right? Just for the yeah, it's, and, and you're all talking the geometry. Yeah, there's like a million plus euros that go into developing any new ski boot, and this one for sure, because a lot of new things, you know, even the the lock mechanism and the stamped aluminum, and like with Fritz's engineering and the the standard of what's in normal ski boot production we've pushed that up to another there's premium materials and processes and more tolerances and more engineering and it's an intricate it's a fritz's one of his great quotes is a, a ski boot's a little machine like a ski touring boot because it's so it has to move it has to lock together it has to and previously ski boots are thought of as just a, it's like a footwear thing and it has to look nice and it has to, you have to be able to put it on and it has to work. But like, I think this is a new, we've, we've kind of brought in even in like a more technical and more refined, like we need to make it this way and it has to stand up to these forces and this is why and, 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 and it's really fun for me and for Fritz, I think, because it's like really true to the, the Dinafit. Dinafit is known for the bindings, which the bindings are Fritz. It was originally Low Tech was the company, which was acquired by Dinafit, and Fritz has been working with them ever since. And his whole dream was he was he was he calls himself lazy, but he didn't want to have to suffer so much. He wanted more efficient. He's like, there's got to be a better way. Mm. And it was all through his drive was through skiing, and that like the innovation came from a skier demanding more out of out of their equipment and then this boot is like another chapter and it's very true to his that's why he jumped on board and that's why he's worked so hard and that's why he continues to be you know a fundamental part of this project um because i think he really can relate to like what i wanted and, and yeah he sees, sounds like you guys are two peas in a pot <laughs> yeah, yeah it's fun um but yeah the, the international business it's it's the bigger a company is, the more managers, the more people, the more marketing, the more like it, it it's hard it it's hard to really align people or like if you're a skier and you put this boot on, you'll immediately go, Wow, that's the range of motion. Boom, lock it down. Wow, it's like feels I could ski on a ski on and like it's a very tangible. I'm so jealous. Like I, so they haven't made a size that I can actually test, but I'm just so curious to know if it's actually a 120 flex next year, or not even. It'll be sooner than that. Probably. I. They're working on the the all the size ranges now because it's like an yeah, enormous yeah, yeah. amount of work. To, yeah, of course. To do all this, I um, just want to know if it's stiff enough. <laughs> I think it's. I mean, that's the thing with this boot in particular. It's not. It was never from the beginning of its the actual product that we have created, not the prototypes that Fritz and I built, but like this boot was slated to be 
classic ski touring boot. So it's never mm. designed to be like the ultra stiff, crazy Alpine race equivalent. It's meant to be a ski touring boot that has a very clear focus on downhill skiing performance. So removing the play and actually creating a, a, a very nice connection between the cuff and the, and the lower shell, right? more responsive, yeah. more fine tuned in this nice, like a smooth, aggressive flex thing gets thrown around way too much. But we wanted that like good, positive feedback and input and, and just like a good ski performance. And, and it is stiff enough for most everything I'm doing. I've, that's, I've been pleasantly surprised, but in the end, it's not, it was never meant to be like a high performance, super stiff Alpine free ride crossover boot. And th that'll come out of, based out of this system. I'm, I'm pretty certain of that. So you've we'll got have to the skeleton wait. now, clearly. Yeah. 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 And yeah we the have the technology. The machine yeah. has been built. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, it's just going to get refined and, and right. become this slicker gonna... and lighter and stronger and better and Nice. Yeah, I, that's my dream anyway. <laughs> well, you're so passionate. It's so fun just to watch your brain work. It's, it's awesome. Um, well, I uh, I want to just, I want to ask you about the pants, the pants oh. down always, but I want to, I want to like switch gears a little bit and ask about, about Jen, like oh, give yeah. some props to Jen. You know, like behind every man stands a, a great woman. Well, not just that, but like this no. woman is one of the greatest skiers of all time, and uh, not enough people know just how rad she. Yeah, Jen. She is. Jen suffered from a few tragic, like just circumstances. I yeah. guess it's she was one she, of the pioneers. She was a pioneer, and she. Will you want, will you just take a minute yeah, to kind of tell no, like her Jen, story? Yeah, one of Canada's premier like groundbreaking female skiers and not just good for a female like yeah one of the best skiers i've ever seen when i first competed i watched her ski and it was so solid i i had no idea it was a female yeah um, and she like she used to ski with the boys in whistler mm -hmm, like in mm -hmm. the 90s the hardcore skiers of whistler and she jen was in it. in the posse hitting air jordan and all these big cliffs and but yeah she obviously honed her skills skiing with the best of the best of Whistler and and then the the comp scene the kind of extreme and big mountain you know world tour stuff was evolving and she got into that and she's very she's good at being competitive and like focusing in on those situations um I mean now 20 years later she's she's moved away from competing and now she's coaching for the junior team, but they're so yeah, lucky. She, they're very lucky and she's a great coach and she loves it. And it's, it's awesome to see her. But she is one of those faces that a lot of people don't know that. She yeah. Did. Well, and you compare, like if you put, she was at the same time and same results as Hugo Harrison. I think she even won the tour on extra time, the free ride world tour, like three titles mm -hmm. and yet not being good at, the game of like promoting yourself and creating opportunities and moving into filming or like, she just didn't have anyone help her or she didn't have it in her to, to pursue that. But like, if you compare her, her success competing to Hugo's at the same time and what, 
Like Hugo's nothing taking away from Hugo. He's one of the best of all time. He changed the sport. He charged lines harder than anyone. You could put his film segments from yearbook and hit list and from 15 years ago, 14 years ago, and they would be the best big lines in any of the films that come out next year. For sure. And he just like another pioneer. And that goes the same for Jen. And Jen, yeah. She would blow with all of us. All the competition right now (laughs) as far as hard charging, line skiing. Well, I don't know if she's like, she's still ripping, but she's definitely like. No, I mean her then. Yeah, her then. Would still be very much. Yeah, um, But she just never got the opportunity. She worked with. Her brands didn't like she. It, it's a Canadian back then too. Like I remember being a Canadian, it was like all the marketing, all the budget, everything went to the U.S. Like it's such a bigger market, and like as a Canadian trying to be an athlete in an obscure like action sport in the late '90s, early 2000s, you got like some free skis. And meanwhile, there's people in the U.S. that I think were doing. You know, they had more behind them, more budgets, bigger budgets, and through the companies. So that would, maybe if she was in the U.S., she would have, I don't know if that would have played a part. But, yeah, she definitely is the uh, unknown legend for, for what she accomplished and how she skis and just her personality. Like, she's very, very nice to hang out with. So it's. <laughs> I wish that... You know, if you could, he turn finally back. at least put uh, put a ring on it. Yeah. How long did that take there, Hodge? Oh yeah, but uh, you know, I'm a busy guy and <laughs> treat her mean, keep her keen. No, <laughs> no, yeah, it, it was it was time, but now we gotta yeah go the next. I I my philosophy is I I did the there's the three rings of of marriage, you know, and I I. You know, set up the, uh, we have the engagement ring. That's the first step, and it's very exciting. And but how long have you dated? How long did it take well, to get that? That was, yeah, like 10, 8 or 10 years. And then, <laughs> But I'm away most of the time. And then the second ring, the wedding ring, is is quite important, obviously. And that's where you spend all your money, and it's a big deal. And then I just skipped that one, and I went to the third ring of marriage. And no one talks about that one. It's not celebrated. It's a suffering. Oh. (laughs) (laughs) It's a good guy. That sounds like a grandpa analogy. It's a guide joke. Oh. The three rings of marriage. (laughs) Oh. Well, I mean, I've also wanted to know, like, with all these incredible segments, um, what are your what are your best memories? Were you ever ha- like really stoked on on a segment? I don't know many athletes that were totally excited about what they saw come out in the films. Like when you think back, were your best? What are your best memories from all these films? We obviously, as the audience, have them, but um, were they like the making of them? Were they the celebratory? You know, seeing them come out. You know, what's your perspective on on all those? Um, well, I, I took it pretty personally and I was, I back most of not the first half of my time doing this, you know, we were shooting on film and you'd shoot all winter long and never see anything. And then the film would come out. So, um, I mean, Matchstick did it the one year with the push and pull, Mm -hmm. um, they did two edits and two films and one was an athlete edited film and the other was uh their their classic mm-hmm. you know film for the tour 
And that kind of opened my eyes, you know, just going and like watching all that footage that you'd work so hard doing or capturing. Mm -hmm. Um, And it was always super rewarding. So I made a big, you know, I would pay out of my own pocket and go down and fly to Tahoe and visit Gaffney and sit in his basement for a couple of days and just like check out everything Mm -hmm. and, and then build these athlete edits like separate from the film. And those always came out as a DVD extra, you know, before Mm -hmm. the internet was really (laughs) Mm -hmm. going or whatever it was. And I'm super glad I did that because now looking back and like for this next project, those are like the cream of the cream. Mm -hmm. And those are the, the reason a lot of those segments have lines that weren't in the film. Maybe they weren't the greatest or most spectacular, but it was because of the effort that went into them and the personal like memory and satisfaction and like, Oh, that meant, a lot to me like what that was really hard or that was an epic day or what and like i would always put the stories all of those in yeah not in, not really capturing For yourself capturing the story but just because you were stoked that you did that yeah and part of that and then uh yeah i think every year like there's a few years i didn't when when I only filmed a certain amount in the, and that really made it into the film. And there's a few years where I didn't build those edits because I was really, I was, you know, by then it was later and I could preview the edits and or the film and um, quite happy. But yeah, I think, I, I mean, every year is different and every year you have your ups and downs. There's definitely years where like everything came together and you had like three good trips and then you have 10 minutes of like, <laughs> how can you even cut any of these shots? Like mm. they're all, wonderful and a lot of fun but I don't know if there's one segment that really like stands out as like better than any of the others I guess yeah that's pretty rad to be able to say um this is this one we're getting down to the edge and I promise but uh I think a lot of people want to know two different things like there's a, a lot of young dads that listen to my podcast um so any advice for for raising a kid that uh, that loves the outdoors and then also like what's your take on this whole social media movement and like how do you deal with it and you know what's your thoughts on it oh, these are such loaded questions no they're not I'm glad you saved them for the end no mm-hmm. <laughs> um, yeah I mean I the older I get now I'm in my mid 30s and I every year I think I'm just I look back to my childhood and I have so many fond memories and like the crazy things that my parents did and the encouragement and just support never pushing me. But like if they saw I was really into something and interested, they were, they would allow me and encourage me to to figure out something to do with that. And I'm very fortunate. Like I, I just smile when I think back to my childhood, it's not always perfect, but there's so many cool things and especially with my father because he was a bit of a madman and like he would like who you know in a couple of the houses we lived in he would climb up he'd find two giant trees climb up 40 feet in the trees higher than the house string a line across and hang a giant hemp rope and build us like a massive rope swing and we would like our our final like kind of the house we lived in in the end we had this massive you would climb up, he put a ladder up on the shed, you'd throw the rope up to your <laughs> brother or friend, and then you'd run across the shed and jump over the neighbor's fence and do this giant like figure eight <laughs> loop of the entire yard. And this was like, oh, and then fun. he could climb 
you know, I remember like he could climb the rope. He was a gymnast and he was super strong and he was really just like, uh, showing me like what you can do. And so I spent years learning, you know, and eventually I could climb the rope and then I'd climb it twice and then I'd climb it with no feet and like, or walking on the hands. That's a, if you can teach your kid how to walk on their hands and do handstands, like he was from his gymnastic background as a, as a youngster, like that was, he was always just like providing these inspirational challenges of like physical And leading skills. by example, it sounds yeah. like. Yeah, and are like, oh, you guys want a trampoline? Yeah, I used to have trampolines in the gym. Yeah, here's a like, here's a backflip. Here's a front flip. Here, here now, like, jump off the second <laughs> yeah, story. Yeah, oh, deck. you guys, yeah, you're not going high enough. Uh, <laughs> yeah, what if I go down to the hardware store, buy a two by twelve, and then frame up an A-frame structure off the side of the deck, so you can just like run up the deck stairs, jump on the railing, run and jump off this diving board, do a double backflip land jump off the trampoline like i i i'm surprised i can even walk actually my knees aren't worn out because i would do that every summer well it shows that <laughs> he didn't also have fear i feel like no, so many no parents fear. they're always like be careful be careful yeah. and it almost instills this like oh i'm supposed to be afraid and yeah. then you you adopt that yeah. so it sounds like something incredible that you learned from him was like that anything is possible because you yeah. don't really it doesn't seem like you have fear <laughs> <laughs> no i have lots of fears but yeah, it's it's that like letting, showing, giving an example, teaching them a way of doing something, and then letting them expand on that, and like encouraging that, and those kind of things as a father, like yeah, that without that, I I That's wouldn't awesome. have ended up being the way I am at all. Like, and my mother, yeah, she wasn't doing those physical <laughs> skills of strength, feats of strength, but she didn't never. Hindered in any yeah. of that. She was super, yeah, into it. So thanks, Mama and Papa yeah. Poji. Yeah, <laughs> big thanks. And then, what about the social meds? Uh, I mean, it's really a hard one for me. I'm a bit of a dinosaur, and somehow I've survived this far without committing. You know, I'm on there a bit, and I try, and like, it's just, I, I feel like I'm. I'm super fortunate to have grown up when I grew up. Like we didn't have any phones. My family barely, I barely had a computer by the end of high school. I wrote all my final exams with a pencil filling in squares or circles and writing an essay by hand and no phones at all. Like, so I, and that was the freedom of, we were just in the woods playing and doing stuff, building whatever we wanted and just being completely free and creative and, and, unaware of like all the whatever else is happening in the world you're a bit ignorant but that's that's the beauty of being a child you shouldn't have to know about everything you should be focused in on your own self-growth discovery yeah yeah and so um yeah and it's frustrating in in our modern world like and we're all i'm i'm a super hypocrite i'll sit there on my phone and i'll be sitting with friends and you know you just get sucked into this Instagramistan is what I like to call it. Yeah, something deep, something that doesn't exist where you're at, and it's not that important. And previously, in in the world, you n- never even have that distraction. So, but it is the information era, and like the amount of self learning I've done with even machining or any like it's it, it's a double edged sword. They, totally, anyone can learn anything. You can find stuff. You have to build up a filter and learn how to learn and decipher through crap and there's a lot of wasted time but 
it is incredible that it's providing people with this It's another tool. It's, it's another tool. tool. And the, the, yeah, the social media, it's fun. Like it, you get to see what your friends are doing that you don't, you can't, there's not enough time in the day to talk to everyone and call everyone. And it's kind of, it, it keeps you connected, but it's, it's a little too much. Like this constant, like everyone connected all the time and constantly working and getting back to people and like the demand on your own personal life is, is incredibly high uh, for the amount of time and effort. If you actually want to like fulfill everything every request and everything you should be looking at or doing or liking or whatever it is. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I'm a bit of a, an old school perspective on it because I grew up without any of that. But you're, you're creating in another way. Like you're creating, you've put all that creative into engineering a new boot. So uh, I think it's, we all have a certain amount of attention and focus and creativity and it shows just where yours is going. Yeah. So it's just an an alternative. I do. I do the best when I'm not in an environment with uh, online connection. Like all these lodges, most of them Mm -hmm. now there's they're starting to have satellite internet, and that's kind of sad. But you know, most of the times you're up there and there's nothing, Mm -hmm. and you're just focused on the people you're with and what you're there to do and the fun you're going to have and the challenges and the chores and whatever it is, and that's it. And the same. When I'm working, all the work I've done is either in my own little mini basement shop with no internet connection or in Austria, my buddy Fritz's was very limited. There's no one's calling me, nothing. And I can just focus in on what I want to do. And and the creative process, it takes so much time. Like, it's easy now to look at it and be like, oh, yeah, we did all that. But then you think back to the weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks of complete focus and commitment on achieving creating something and yeah so i i like being disconnected and um showing that it pays off (laughs) it pays it can pay if you it like i'm not never a person to be bored there's always something i can be doing or making working on or fixing or I don't yeah. need I don't need the online connection to entertain me. That's that's Clearly. not not who I am. Okay, leave us with uh, pants down story. Oh, uh, the pants down. Yeah, hashtag this, pants. Hashtag down. pants down always. And this is one of my favorite things about Fritz and his personality and characters. And explain pr- Fritz a little bit. Yeah, so he's Fritz German. Like Fritz is an Austrian classic. Oh, Austrian. Austrian. My he's yeah Austrian skier at heart. Engine, you know, trained as an engineer, taught mad scientist, mad right? scientist. But he's like worked teaching engineering at technical high schools, and like had a professional training and career. And passionate skier, his father is a great skier, mountaineer, climber, and like same kind of. Built in. Over there, it's quite common in Austria because the entire country is pretty much mountains. So. Or not the but most of the country. So there's a you know the the alpine countries of the of the Alps. There's a huge that's their culture. Everything about it is to mountains. to do with the mountains. So he's a product of that, and yeah, with a very creative mind and a drive and mad scientist that wasn't satisfied and knew there could be a better way. And he applied himself and his skills and used his his massive genius brain and created something that changed our entire industry for the better. Um, 
and I'm, I feel extremely fortunate just to have gotten to meet him and hang out with him as much as I have and gotten to ski with and him. And he's how old now? Uh, he would be, I think he's 57. So yeah, he, the original low tech binding, he first like patented and came out with was 1984. So wow. I was one years old. <laughs> um, but yeah, so Fritz, I mean, he's just a wealth of knowledge. Like he'll take us, Jen and I visited him and I'm always over there and he'll like, oh, today we're going to go to the farmhouse museum of Austria and they've taken all these elm houses. They're called from all the regions of Austria and around surrounding countries and like took them down board by board and rebuilt them perfectly. And like, there's all the different regions and eras and you just walk through there and he tells you about all of them and where they came from and why they were like that. And he's just like an encyclopedia. We went to this uh, armor museum in Innsbruck and they have the, they hand out a little like pendant, you know, you rent one for 20 euros or something and it has all the languages and you can just like get earphones and listen you type in the numbers of all the displays and there's some audio. We didn't need that. Fritz just, no, he's like, oh, this is from, you know, the Middle Ages wow. and this battle and these guys had this kind of sword and these guys built this. And, like, he, it's an, an, I wish I had that kind of mental capacity to memorize, like, all these, all this information and details and facts. And that's just, like, fun for him. And... <laughs> He's a teacher. He loves to he loves to to explain and like pass on anything he's memorized or learned. Um, but the incredible thing is he's you know he's Austrian, and in Austria most especially nowadays back in his generation, not as common to to be fully like fluent in English. People have some, but like he's like flawless, and he's. His humor, like, I think to really, I, I have no language skills. I, I can't learn. I'm, I'm so lazy and so stupid. But for someone to learn a second language and become so proficient at it and be able to express their personality with humor, and that's like, yeah. that really shows that you understand the language completely. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, he his sense of, he's also got this incredible sense of humor that's constantly making fun of himself and what he does or any accomplishment or like, he just loves, he loves to make light of any situation. And so, yeah, we are working away tirelessly for hours and doing all this. And it's like one of the big innovations or like the drive for this project with the, the Skibu was we want to really focus on user interface. You know, we're tired of, messing around every transition ski touring's hard let's streamline this let's make it easy and let's make it fun and so he yeah we were like oh we can link everything with this one buckle and that's nothing new that's been around in randonnée racing we've done it in a little different way but to have a real like a ski boot with with decent skiing performance to have that is is kind of the new the new point and yeah, somehow along the way, it was like, yeah, you don't like, don't touch it. Don't touch your buckles. Just leave your pants down and pants down always. And like, he, he coined that term and he really was like, that's, that's it. You know, like that should be the mark. Like if it was up to him, that's a marketing slogan. It's like hilarious. Cause it makes you scratch your head pants down always. Like what are, what the hell are they 
there's a bunch of like bad things that go along with this. And like, but once you try the boot and you use it, try it on and switch it between walk and ski, it's like, yeah, pants down always. You it's, never have to, and you'll never forget up, that. Essentially, to play with your boots yeah, is what you, they're getting at. You'll never <laughs> forget that uh, slogan, you know, it's, it's genius. Yeah, it it's works. It's a second language. <laughs> nice one, Fritz. Mm -hmm. Well, thanks so much. Uh, we just skipped our dinner, so I'm hoping that we can actually get some food. Oh, yeah, it's fine. <laughs> it's fine. Well, congratulations. Yeah. That's such an incredible story. You've clearly, you've revolutionized our sport in so many ways as an athlete and now an engineer. And uh, it's just, it's been so fun to just to watch your passion, just to listen to it. Well, thank you for having me and, and uh, setting this interview up. And thank you for those compliments. I, <laughs> I, I don't know if it's true. Yeah, I, I hope uh, the, the film I thought is... You were gonna be, I, I thought you were kind of shy. Like, you know, we, no. have, we haven't heard too many words out of Hoji no. through the matchstick world. Turns out he has a lot to say. Yeah, well, I'm getting older, so I like to ramble on. And <laughs> Yeah, this will be the... I think this film will be a good opportunity to, like, really... Have a voice. Yeah, show yeah. a bit more of... It's been such an incredible journey, super fortunate, and great amazing people that have made it all possible and I want this project to, to really like bring them into the light as well and and a lot of the athletes are involved that have been my friends and you know ski partners and I, yeah it's it's just going to be a I, I think a lot of fun to just go through it all and and try and put it together in somehow a palatable hour <laughs> yeah no it'll be good it'll be awesome all right well thanks again and good luck with the rest of your tour yes thank you <laughs> Thank you so much for listening, friends. It absolutely means the world to me to have you listening. If you enjoyed the conversation, go ahead and leave us a review on iTunes. Help me spread the word. And be sure to subscribe. Until then, see you in the mountains, unicorns. Unicorns.